Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Mr. Allen. Bad time for us to begin. Uh, we are here to worship God in spirit and in truth, and we hope uh, that everything we do here pleases him and edifies us. Welcome to everyone. Uh, welcome especially to our visitors. And we, we hope that you will stay around and let us, let us get, let us, let us get to know you. Let us get to know you a little bit better. There are visitor's cards in the uh, container right in front of you. If you have not filled one of those out, please fill one of those out and get them to someone uh, sitting near you and it will get to the right, right place. I wanted to announce um, that we will have, um, beginning in October, we will begin passing the communion trays and the collection trays uh, again, but we will also have the individual um, containers uh, in the back as you come in. If you prefer that, just pick those up and, and um, don't participate in the other. Um, the life groups uh, should be beginning to meet. Um, the sheets for those life groups out, are out in the foyer on the table as you walk in near the Rome Journal as well. Today we have our uh, last Sunday of the month potluck and uh, everyone is invited whether you are a visitor or a regular or whether you brought something or you did not. There is always plenty of food available and we would love to have you stay and eat with us. As a result, uh, the, uh, when we do that, we worship at one o'clock for our evening worship and then there is no uh, evening worship uh, at six. During that meal, um, I think we have decided and maybe announced from time to time, but we probably need to repeat it. What we would like to do is uh, those who are elderly, if you would go ahead and move to um, the area where the, where the food is served uh, following worship, because we would like for the elderly to be served first and then the children second and then the adults uh, last. If you are with a child, obviously, go with your child. Um, but uh, we find that that's a, a better way to uh, carry, out it, uh, carry that out and not neglect our elderly and push them to the end of the line because they might be a little, not quite as fast to get to the front. So if you will, please uh, abide by that as well. Our various responsibilities today, John Kelly will be leading singing, Andy Pittman will have the reading and prayer, uh, Dickie Parker uh, will be in charge of the Lord's uh, table, and Nathan Thompson has the closing, and Chris uh, French has the message as usual. Let's bow before we go into our worship. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity, the blessing, and the privilege that we have to come here and worship you on this Lord's day. We pray, Father, that everything that we do will be according to the pattern that we find in your word and will please you, will edify us so that we can be stronger to leave this place and go out into the world and serve you more effectively than maybe we have in the past. We pray, Father, that later on as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that we will focus our thoughts entirely on your son and his sacrifice for us and your love for us and the giving of your son for us. We realize, Father, without that sacrifice, we would have no hope of eternal salvation. Our sins would still be on us, 
And we're very thankful for the fact that you have seen to give us a way to have remission of those sins and enjoy eternal bliss. We pray, Father, for those individuals who are not here uh, this morning, whether uh, weakness of the flesh, weakness of, of the, uh, the spirit. We pray, Father, that whatever is being done with those people and for those people, that they will be able to return to us uh, in full strength. Help us, Father, be uh, a catalyst in that effort as well. We ask that you be with us as we worship. Help us to center our thoughts on everything spiritual. In your son's dear name, amen. Let's all please stand. We'll sing hymn number 220, He Lives. <clears throat> 220. I serve the risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living, whatever men may say. I feed His hand on mercy. I hear His voice of
Please be seated. <clears throat> Next hymn this morning, number 547, Rejoice, the Lord is King. And after this hymn, Brother Andy Pittman will have our scripture and prayer. Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King, my Lord. Rejoice, thanks and sing, and triumph evermore. The reading this morning will come from the book of 1 Corinthians, from the 15th chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6. For what I received, I passed on to you as of the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this, uh, this amazing the world that you've created for us. Father, the, the, the beauty and the majesty we see within it. And Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of your son for our, for our eternal life. Father, we pray that you, pray that you be with us as we... Uh, we we partake in these services, Father, that we may worship in the spirit and the truth, Father, that we may worship pleasing in your sight. Lord, be with us as in all that we do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
Next hymn this morning, number 726. We saw thee not. 726. <clears throat> We saw thee not when thou didst come to this world. Jesus came to earth to save his people from their sins, Matthew 1 and verse 27. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live righteous. For his word, you are healed, 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. As we come to this time in our worship service, we turn our minds back to the cross. Remember that God loved us, that he sent Jesus to us, and it was through Jesus that all of our sins were forgiven. Our chance to live with God in heaven 
was given to us. Jesus knew man. He knew man's heart. He knew man's memory. We would forget. Jesus, as he sat with the disciples in the upper room that night, he initiated the Lord's Supper. He took two very simple items, the unleavened bread, which represented his body that was beaten and broken and hung up on a cross, and the fruit of the vine, which represents Jesus' blood that washes away our sins. To help prepare our mind, I'd like to read from Romans chapter 5, 6 through 10. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for the righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love, his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more have been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Let's go to God in prayer. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your son and the love that he showed for each of us, for the forgiveness of our sins. And Father, as we partake of this unleavened bread which represents his body, Father, it's our desire that we do it in a manner that's pleasing to thy sight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we continue to remember Jesus and the love and the sacrifice that was made for us, we ask that you bless this fruit of the vine that washes away our sins. Father, we ask that we take it in a manner that's pleasing to the sight. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This concludes the Lord's Supper. Separate and apart, we're commanded to return, to return a portion of what we've been given. We have two, two containers in the back of the room that you may deposit your gifts back to the church back there. Let us go to God in prayer. Our gracious and heavenly Father, you continually bless us, and you bless us with over mounts of, of everything that we have, Father. Father, as we 
return a portion of this to you today. We ask that we have a cheerful and giving heart, that they may be used to better serve you, strengthen your kingdom. Father, we ask that you be with the elders of this church, that you guide them and direct them in doing so, Father. Father, it's, it's our desire that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's all please stand again. We'll sing hymn number 408. 408. Lo, in the grave he lay. So at this time, the young children may go to the children's Bible hour. <clears throat> Invitation hymn for this morning, number 482. 482. Oh, listen to our wonder story. Brother Christian. Good morning. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about 
a variety of Christian evidences. Uh, so, like, why do you believe what the Bible teaches? Uh, why do you believe the Bible itself? Can you trust your Bible? Um, and so we've talked about that the first week. And we talked about how uh, there are evidences throughout Scripture that your faith is firmly planted in. You can be sure that you can trust your Bible. Last uh, Two weeks ago we talked about evolution. And is, that, is, is evolution true? Uh, does even science leave enough room for evolution? We found, uh, of course, that it does not. Certainly Scripture does not leave enough room for evolution to be true. And now even science has not left enough room for evolution to be true. Uh, last week we talked about dinosaurs, and I would love to talk to you more about any of those topics uh, and whether man lived with dinosaurs and all those kinds of things. Um, I would love to talk to you more about those topics. Uh, today we're talking about Jesus' resurrection. This is the truth that if it's true, we ought to be willing to die for him. If it's not true, nothing matters. That's what Paul claimed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you flip your Bibles over there real quick, this is uh, right after the passage that Andy read for us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting uh, in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? There's a contingency in the Corinthian congregation that thinks that Jesus really wasn't raised and that no one's going to be raised from the dead. And Paul argues with that contingency here. Verse 13, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If this truth that Jesus really wasn't in the grave that Sunday morning, if he was in the grave that Sunday morning when the women came to look in the grave to anoint his body with oils. If he was there, then nothing matters. You might as well go home. You might as well stop making the sacrifices. You might as well stop believing all the things you believe. If he was in the grave that Sunday morning, everything you believe is useless. But if he wasn't, if he was not in the grave that Sunday morning, if angels really did say, why are you seeking the living among the dead, if that's true, then you should give everything in your life to serve him. That's what we're talking about this morning. Can you prove that the resurrection is a historical fact? The Bible certainly claims it, right? You don't have to read very far in Scripture to find the Bible loudly shouting, universally proclaiming that the resurrection did happen. Jesus his body was not in that tomb that Sunday morning. He had resurrected. And that was an incredible thing. And it was a pivotal moment in Christian history when even his brother, who did not believe in him, James, one of his brothers, Jesus has several siblings, but one of them, James especially, did not believe in Jesus. And in fact, none of them did really not when he was claiming to be deity. They met him one day trying to persuade him out of claiming deity. And they kind of come to him and say something very similar to this. What you're saying is so incredibly dangerous that it's going to get you killed. We care about you. Stop making these claims because these guys are going to murder you if you don't stop. He, of course, did not stop. And even after uh, they had made that statement said, well, whoever does my will is my brothers and my sisters and my mother. 
And so James, his, one of his brothers, does not believe in him. During his life, as he's being crucified, they were right. James and, and Jude and Mary, all, the one, all of his family were right. What he was saying got him killed. And so James may be standing there at the foot of the cross or maybe more likely from a distance thinking, I told you this was happening. Why didn't you listen to me? I knew this was where, I knew this was the road you were going to walk down. And I tried to warn you and you just didn't listen. And on that day, he still didn't believe. But three days later, when Jesus really was resurrected, when his body was not in the tomb, he appears to James and from that moment on, James is a believer. And James dies for Jesus because he refuses to stop saying that Jesus really did raise from the dead. This is the pivotal moment in human history where everything changes. And so it's a pivotal moment in your life right now. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then nothing else matters and your faith is useless. But if you do believe in the resurrection, if you know that he really was raised from the dead, then he deserves every ounce of your life all the way up until your death. He's deserving of that if he really was raised from the dead. So can we prove that? Is it an historical fact? It is. Here's, here's some... Uh, I got this... We, we, we really like national parks... Uh, in our family, we we visited a couple over the last couple of years. Uh, but I bought Kelly bought me this book. It's called Subpar Parks, uh, and it, so it's one star reviews from people that have visited these amazing uh, natural wonders like the Grand Canyon, and they left a one star review for it. And so it says it's a hole, a very very large hole. And somebody's kind of like, eh, I don't get it, you know. And somebody went to the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, and they said, I didn't even get to touch lava, you know? Man. Uh, and then if you've ever been to Yellowstone, uh, you just should save yourself some, some money and boil some water at home because that's, that's what these geysers really are. They are. This is a book called Subpar Books, and the lady that's written this book and illustrated it has a, uh, has a one-star review for every one of the, the national parks. They're kind of missing the point, aren't they? You go to the Grand Canyon, you look at it, and you're like, it's just a hole. You go to Yellowstone, you look at the guys, you say, it's just some boiling water. You go to Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, and you say, wow, I didn't even get to touch lava. You kind of missed the point, didn't you? You're supposed to stand back in awe at this incredible natural wonder that's before you, and you're just seeing a giant hole. You're kind of missing the point. If you're living your life as a Christian, but you don't buy into the resurrection, you've kind of missed the point. It's like going to the Grand Canyon and just thinking it's a giant hole, right? If you have been baptized for the purpose of the forgiveness of your sins and you're living life and making sacrifices, but you haven't bought into the resurrection, if you're not willing to go all the way, right? If you're living a half-hearted to use a biblical term in Revelation 2, a lukewarm life, you're kind of missing the point, right? And so today, we want to drill that into our heads. If the resurrection really is true, he demands everything I've got. If it's not, 
I might as well quit doing everything. There's no, there's no need to make sacrifices. There's no need to make profession or, or any of the things that we do as Christians. If he's not been raised, nothing else matters. But if he has, then we have to stop the mediocre Christianity and we've got to live righteous lives like he calls us to. So let's figure it out. Is the resurrection a historical fact? I think it is. Let me walk you through some of these things. So when Jesus was... Let's slide for a second. <laughs> when Jesus was crucified, before he's crucified, he is scourged. And so maybe you don't know what a scourging is. That's not something that happens very commonly today. So let's, let's walk through what it would look like to be scourged. Maybe you've never done the research on this, and so you're, you just don't know. Let me explain what scourging is to you. They would have, post, they would have uh, put a post down in the ground. They would have tied Jesus to the post. His hands would have been tied up here, so the muscles in his back were laid taunt. They were, they were stretched tight. Two Roman soldiers, one on this side, and one on this side would have stood parallel to Jesus. They would have had one of these flagrums and they would have whipped him in alternating views. So like this one would have whipped him and then this one, and this one, and then this one. These things were, were nasty devices. You see a picture on the screen behind me. It's got lead on it. Some of them had balls. Some of them had these, these triangular pieces. They're designed to inflict um, uh, internal bleeding, they're, 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 they're punches every time, punches into uh, the back and the ribs, the lung areas. They would have also had something like barbed wire on these things, uh, pieces of bone, pieces of metal that would have reached into the skin and pulled it off. And that's what these guys are doing. They're not, they're not doing this like, like we would think of as, as like a whipping. They're not doing this, they're doing this and scraping it across the back of his skin. That's why they're standing beside him, so that they can rip it all the way across his back. And we don't know how many times that happened to him. We're not told a number there. But often people died from scourging. It was a regular occurrence that you did not need to go through the crucifixion because you had the, the prisoner had already, the criminal had already died because of the beating that he'd received in the scourging. Most likely, you could have seen Jesus' ribs from the wounds that had been inflicted, from the flesh that had been torn off his back. Because we know that he did not die during the scourging. He goes on to the crucifixion. That's where he ultimately dies, right? But just the fact that he endured the, the scourging is fairly incredible. But it weakened him to the point that he could not carry his own cross. We know that from the Gospels, right? A man named Simon of Cyrene was, uh, was forced to help him carry his cross. Once he gets to uh, the cross, the next component of his execution happens. And so he would have been forced to carry a uh, cross beam, the cross beam of the cross. He would have been forced to carry that uh, on, up the, uh, on up the hill. And that's the piece that he could not carry. And so when he got there, uh, thanks to Simon of Cyrene helping him carry it up the, up the hill, uh, they would have used a five to six inch nail right between his, uh, 
the, of the, the wrist here, they would have driven this five to six inch, six inch uh, railroad spike basically into his, into his, uh, his wrists. This would have sent pain radiating through his hands and throughout his body because there's a median nerve in your wrist and they are intentionally, intentionally severing that nerve to send courses of pain throughout his body. They would have crossed his legs so that one foot was on top of the other and then they would have driven a similar nail through his feet in the hopes that he's not going to have the strength to push up so that he can breathe. breathe. Essentially, Jesus suffocates on the cross and that was the normal result for a crucifixion. Don't forget, though, that his back is already shreds. Um, His skin... His muscle, his bones most likely already are already exposed on his back. And so every time he pushes up so he can breathe, splinters in that rough wood push into his, his shredded back. And so you don't survive this execution. This was something the Romans were quite familiar with. They did not invent crucifixion, that uh, honor. I guess, belongs to the Persians, but the Romans made it perfect, made it torturous to the nth degree. These guys perfected crucifixion. And in fact, there's only one record of a man surviving crucifixion. I'm bringing this up because some scholars, at least one or two, think, and maybe we should put scholars in quotation marks because most don't believe this Uh, In fact, one or two or three actually do believe it. But they call it the swoon theory. And so they think that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but that he um, passed out essentially from the pain inflicted on the cross. The Romans thought he was dead and they put him in this tomb. He stayed there for around three days. And when uh, when his back hit that cold slab, it revived him and he uh, was able to... Uh, recover somewhat from his injuries to the extent that he was able to walk around for a bit, show himself to some people, and pass it off as if he had resurrected. The problem with that is the Romans would not have allowed that, would they? In fact, you're familiar with the biblical story where the Roman soldier makes that impossible for Jesus to have lived through this incident by shoving a spear up into his heart, right? He did not live through this incident, though he will live again, right? The one, I told you there's one guy who has survived crucifixion, at least legend has it that he survived crucifixion. It's thanks to our friend on the screen behind me. His name's Josephus. Josephus is an important player in the first century. He is a Jew. He is, in fact, a Pharisee, but he is also, in fact, a Roman uh, soldier. He's a Roman uh, general. He's going to come and play really um, around the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. He's going to turn coat uh, and, and fight for the Romans and, and um, inform uh, them about Jewish practices. And he's, he's going to become a Benedict Arnold, basically. But he's also the historian of Jewish history during this time period. So um, he tells us about this one time when he was coming back into Rome after a conquest somewhere and he sees some guys who used to fight with him and he knows they're not criminals. This is a fairly common 
mistake that the Roman government makes with supposed criminals. They will say that someone has done something against Roman law and then they will crucify them pretty quickly and without due justice or without a trial and they just they say it so it happens and this person is crucified and they die. Fortunately for these three men, Josephus recognizes them. As he's coming through the road into Rome, he looks up and he sees all these, they did mass crucifixions then too, uh, not just singles, but they would do mass crucifixions. And that's what's happened on this occasion. A mass crucifixion has happened and Josephus is looking at the faces as he walks down the, Roman, the road to Rome, which is why they would do crucifixions, by the way, right? Because they want you to see these people. So the next time you think Roman government, man, we, we should just rise up. And we should fight them. And then you think, I don't want to be crucified, so I guess I'll just sit here in my place and say, yes, sir. You know? And so that's the goal for, uh, for crucifixion. It's to keep you in your place. And so they would have made these things very public. And so when Josephus is walking down this road to Rome, he looks up and he sees these three men. He, he recognizes them. They're not uh, criminals. In fact, they're, they're war heroes. And so he goes to Caesar at the time. He pleads his case and Caesar actually has mercy on these three men and he brings them down from the cross uh, and two of them still die. With the best medical practices of the day, only one of them survives and, and that's, that's legend. But he's the only one who has ever survived a Roman crucifixion. Jesus did not survive the Roman crucifixion. That was the point. Remember, the point of a crucifixion is to keep you in your place. These insurrections cannot continue. And so if you cause an insurrection against Rome, which is the, 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 the charge that the Jewish uh, leadership has against Jesus, that's why he's crucified in the end, is because he's an insurrectionist. He's the king of the Jews. And what do kings do? They fight and they kick people out of their lands. And so that's the charge levied against Jesus. And so that's why he's ultimately crucified. They don't take kindly to insurrectionists. In fact, they want to make a point. You will not rise up. If you do rise up, we will knock you down and then we will kill you in an awful way. And so that's what they did with Jesus. Point being, he did actually die on the cross. That's a historical fact. Most scholars that are reputable, these ones that are talking about the swoon theory, these guys are, are on the outs uh, of, of their scholarly circles. Most people uh, would roll their eyes at, at their views. So 99% of scholars think Jesus really was crucified. And he really did. He really did die. Because people don't get off of Roman crosses and tend to live very well, especially with uh, spear wounds in their side. So what else? There's a guy named Tacitus. He's a Roman, um, but he's not a fan of Rome. And so what he says against Rome and about Christianity, because he doesn't like either one of them, as a historian, his words are valuable to us because he doesn't have a dog in this fight, so to speak. He doesn't like Rome and he doesn't like Christians. And so what he reports as far as history goes is usually ver um, verifiable. He's usually right on. And he lives during the same time period uh, as we're talking about today. He says this, 
Not all the relief that could come from the man, not all the bounties that the prince could bestow, nor all the atonements which could be presented to the gods available to relieve Nero from the infamy of being believed to have ordered the conflagration, the fire of Rome. So in 66 AD, Rome is burned to the ground. Something like 70% of the city is burned. And people think today are pretty sure that Nero did it himself. He's kind of a, a unhinged a little bit uh, toward the end of his reign here. But he's savvy enough to not say that it was him, but he blames it on the Christians. And so that's what Tacitus is talking about here. Therefore, to squelch the rumor, Nero created scapegoats and subjected to the most refined tortures those whom the common people call Christians, a group hated for their abominable crimes. We eat the body of Jesus and we drink his blood. Their names come from Christ who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by the procreator, procreator Pontius Pilate. So he, this guy who lives during this time period, who has no dog in the fight, a, a reputable historian says that Jesus really did die via crucifixion under Pontius Pilate's reign. Check out what he says here, what Luke says here in Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So we've got two things here. We're, we're jumping, we're moving on from the logic at this point, right? So here you find, back with Tacitus, Jesus' death was a historical, is an historical fact. He really did die. And so can we prove that he really was resurrected? Well, Acts, the book of Acts, has taken all kinds of hits over the year. In fact, in the 1880s and 1890s, not even conservative scholars would want to defend the book of Acts. Luke names... So many different characters throughout, um, throughout this story. So many different countries. So many different specifics that Luke names. They thought that there's no possible way you could verify this book. He's got to be wrong on some of these things. And as time has progressed, guess what we found about Luke? He is the most specific historian out there. He should be in the... Uh, Historian's Hall of Fame. And here in Acts, as well as in all the rest of the book of Acts, he presents Jesus' resurrection as a historical fact. And people have tried to devalue the book of Acts. They've tried, right, to say, well, where's this city? What, what, what about this person? Remember Pontius Pilate was... A question for a long time, but then we found what? An inscription with Pontius Pilate's name on it, who was procreator of the exact spot that the Bible says that he was. During the same time period, the Bible claims that he was doing that job. So time and time again, Acts has been proven to be true along with the rest of Scripture, right? Why would Luke deviate at this point? He's been found to be the clearest historical voice Ever. He's not going to deviate from 
that historical narrative during the resurrection to prove the resurrection. And here, time and time again, Acts 2, 22 through 24 is just one instance where he continually comes back to this idea Jesus really was raised from the dead. He's proven himself to be true. He's proven himself time and time again to be the most accurate historian around. He's not going to deviate here in this um, thought about Jesus' resurrection. Also, the common sentiment of Paul's day, just 20, 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, the common sentiment of Paul's day is that Jesus really was raised from the dead. And Paul gives us a pretty clear view of that in the verse that Andy read for us in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, if you've still got your Bibles open there, let's, let's look again at verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He says the Old Testament's been talking about that since day one, right? Well, since day one of the fall. That he was buried, in verse 4, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This has been talked about from the very beginning. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared, in verse 6, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of, whom, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his brother, who didn't believe that he was resurrection, resurrected up until this very moment. And then he's willing to die for him. And then Paul says, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so the common sentiment of Paul's day, and this passage along with so many others, prove that the common sentiment of his day was that Jesus really was resurrected from the dead. Paul was absolutely convinced. As a matter of fact, uh, skeptical scholars have noted uh, this. They've been forced to concede that the testimony of Paul alone is sufficient to convince us beyond any reasonable doubt that this was the commonly accepted opinion in his day, an opinion at that time supported by the highest authority imaginable, the eyewitnesses themselves. This is such a strong testimony. The only way skeptics can get around this testimony is to say that, well, all these people, go back and look at 1 Corinthians 15, the 500, James, Paul, Peter, the 12, all of them were having a common delusion. All of them were having a common hallucination. Have you ever had a hallucination? I never have. I don't really want one, but I never had one. But I cannot imagine all of us in this room, there's not even 500 people in this room, right? But I cannot imagine even all of us in this room spread out across how many miles, I don't know, but I know he didn't appear to the 12 and then to James at the same time. The Bible tells me that. I know that he appeared to the 12 in different places and across different weeks. So they're having the exact same hallucination. All of them are having the exact same hallucination. And they have it for 50 days. And Paul has it a couple years later. That stretches the imagination, doesn't it? That would be the miracle. Is that of all these people could have the same hallucination of Jesus as being raised from the dead. Skeptics believe, even though they don't believe in the resurrection, they know that they did. 
that Peter, Paul, James, all the 500, all the people in the first century, they admit, this is a historical fact, that these guys believed that the resurrection really did happen. They were so convinced, as a matter of fact, that each one of the apostles died for it. Except Judas and John was exiled to Patmos. But all the rest of them, including Paul, died because they would not stop saying that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They wouldn't stop saying that I've seen him. I saw it happen. Why in the world would they not stop saying that if it wasn't true? Are you going to die for a lie? If someone came up to you and said, the sky is brown, and you looked up and said, it's not, it's blue. They said, I'm going to take your life if you don't say that it's brown. What are you going to say? That's brown. <laughs> Look at that up there. That thing's brown, right? You don't die for something you know is not true. Every single one of these guys died because they refused to stop saying that Jesus really had been resurrected from the dead. Why did they do that? Because they saw it. Thomas was able to feel it, to put his hands in the nail wounds and the spear wound. How many of you guys think Peter did that? I bet he did. Peter's just too impetuous not to run up to Jesus and feel it. You know, I'd have done the exact same thing. I bet you would have too. I bet they've all done it. You know, I want to verify that this is true. Because if this is true, it changes everything. If he really is raised from the dead, he's worth dying for. Because he can raise me from the dead. If he's not, nothing matters. These guys all saw it. All 12 of the disciples, 500 people at once, these guys saw him resurrected from the dead. And they were so sold out to this idea that every single one of them was willing to die and did die because they refused to stop saying that he had been resurrected from the dead. Acts proves Jesus' resurrection. This is something we've already talked about. Luke mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, 9 Mediterranean islands. He mentions 95 people, 62 of which are not found anywhere else in Scripture. So surely to goodness, somewhere in there, he would have made a mistake. But you know what? He didn't. And the more time passes and the more things we find in the Middle East, the more of these places we uh, excavate, guess what we find? More and more evidence that supports Scripture, that verifies Scripture. Luke was right on as he proclaims throughout the book of Acts that Jesus really had been resurrected from the dead. This is one of the things Sir William Ramsey, he's a skeptic uh, from uh, the previous century, the early 1900s, late 1800s. He says this, the more I have studied the narrative of Acts and the more I have learned year after year about Greco-Roman society and thoughts and fashions and organizations in those provinces, the more I admire and the better I understand. I set out to look for truth on the borderland where Greece and Asia meet, and I found it here in the book of Acts. This guy's a skeptic, and so he is so skeptical that he has gone into the Bible lands to prove Luke wrong. He goes in trying to disprove Luke, and he actually finds faith. He says, you may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians. He says, you can trust this guy more than you can trust Josephus or Tacitus or any other historian in, uh, in history. 
and they stand, his words, Luke's words, stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment, provided always that the critic knows the subject. He gotta know, he's got to know what he's talking about, right? He's got to know uh, the, the Bible lands. And does not go beyond the limits of science and of justice. You can't just lie about what you found. If you can... If you know what you're talking about and you're, not gonna, if you're, and you're not willing to lie to prove he's not true, you go back and you find Luke and he'll prove every single thing that what he said was true is true, including Jesus' resurrection. And so this morning you've got a decision to make. Do you think that the resurrection is a historical fact? I think the logic, if you follow it through like we've done this morning, I don't think you can get around it. I don't think you can get around it. I don't think, I don't think there's any way for you to say he, he really wasn't resurrected. History proves it. Certainly scripture proves it. And you can trust your Bible. And so this morning your decision is, what am I going to do? If you haven't been baptized, you're still lost in your sins. And Jesus is still holding you culpable for those things just like he was on the day of Pentecost against the people that had literally murdered him and so they asked Peter how to be alleviated from those sins and what did Peter tell them in Acts 2 38 he says repent and be baptized to have your sins washed away maybe that's your need this morning maybe you just need the prayers of this congregation because life is difficult and we need to live lives that are sold out for him. The resurrection's true and I can't live a mediocre, half-hearted, lukewarm faith. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're there this morning and you think I'm ready for a change. The resurrection's true. I'm convinced I'm ready to give everything I've got for him. If that's your need this morning, why won't you come as we stand and sing?
Good morning, church family. A couple announcements before we are dismissed this morning. As a reminder that uh, today is Church Eat Church. Uh, we're having a potluck uh, right immediately after services. Um, and uh, everybody's welcome to come to that. We'd love to have you uh, stay in fellowship with, with us. And then right after that, at 1 o'clock, we'll have 1 o'clock service. Uh, there will be no 6 o'clock service, but if you're not doing anything at 6 o'clock, uh, you're welcome to come over to the Trevathan's house, and uh, this is for everybody. A lot of people have asked, is it just a youth activity? Um, it is not. It is for anybody who wants to come. Um, we'll be singing uh, praises to God, and uh, you're welcome to bring some drinks and some uh, snacks if you want to, but what an opportunity for us to fellowship and, um, and sing praises to God at 6 o'clock um, at, at the Trevathan's house. Uh, the service project... Uh, after 1 o'clock service, we'll be punching holes in the new directory. Um, if you can help out with that, please, uh, please do. There's a lot, 150 directories. Um, uh, there's a lot. I'd love to get it done. Um, <laughs> I'm tired of seeing them. Um, <laughs> they, but uh, I'd love everybody's help uh, to getting those done so we can get those passed out to everybody. Um, also, the fifth, next fifth quarter... Uh, is uh, September 30th. That will be Farron's next home game. Um, so next uh, fifth quarter will be September 30th. And if you can help out with um, passing out uh, uh, door flyers, um, Chris and, and Marvin are heading up uh, door knocking on October 8th. Uh, their plan is to pass out 500 um, door hangers. And um, if, so if you can just take 10, maybe five, you know, and just go around your neighborhood, put them on, on your neighbor's doors, uh, let them know about our services uh, here at Rome, uh, what time we have services, but uh, what an opportunity uh, for us to spread God's word uh, by, by doing that. Um, but like I said, if you can just take five or ten, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, please see Chris or, or Marvin if you can help out with that. Um, Melanie Freeman, uh, daughter of Jade, uh, uh, passed away this Friday, so remember to continue to keep the Freeman's family in your prayers at this time. Um, also, uh, remember to continue to pray for Chad's mom and dad, um, Janie and Glenn, and also remember to continue to keep Sean Steiner in your prayers. Uh, keep Chris's mom in your prayers, Debbie. Um, she's home now, but uh, remember to continue to keep her in your prayers. And also, Mary, continue to keep uh, Jennifer Baker in your prayers as she's at home recovering from her surgery. Uh, Mary, continue to keep Jerry Fry in your prayers and uh, Brett and uh, Noreen Tawney. Uh, keep uh, them in your prayers as well. That's all the announcements I have. Looking forward to seeing everybody again at 1 o'clock. And everybody, please welcome your, welcome to stay for our potluck. We'll sing one more song and be dismissed in prayer. Let's please stand again. We'll sing hymn number nine. We'll sing the first two verses, A Wonderful Savior. And after that, Brother Nathan Thompson will have our prayer. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. A wonderful Savior to me. He Yeah. 
Let us pray. Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we are so very thankful to have had this opportunity to be gathered together this morning to listen to the insightful sermon that Chris shared with everyone. We ask that you keep all those families who are mourning the loss of a loved one, and we ask that you help them through that time. We ask that you wrap your love and grace around those that are sick and suffering through illness, that you allow them to return to a, a normal uh, health. We ask that you bless this food that uh, many are about to partake of, and we ask that you allow everybody to um, return home and, and come back at the next appointed time. In your son's name, amen. <laughs> 